so I got, I got to be honest, I didn't expect Presbyterians to be that rowdy, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I like it. I'm a fan. Man, I am, I'm really glad to be here. So I've driven by the campus before. This is my first time on campus. I still haven't seen the campus, but it's my first time on campus. <laughs> I'm really glad to be with you. And for those of you who are part of the Brainerd family, man, it's good to see you. Glad you guys are here. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah, the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29, incredibly familiar passage. One of the verses we're going to look at today uh, has been inscribed on all sorts of things that we sell to you at Christian bookstores all over the place. We radically misinterpret it when we do so, but we do it all over. I used to work for Lifeway, so I can say this. You know, by the way, you know, by the way, you know how a product is a Christian product, right? We charge twice as much. It works half as well. And uh, anyway, <laughs> all right. So Jeremiah 29 is what I want us to talk about. Here's what I want us to think about. I want us to think about building an exilic theology. What does it mean to be a people in exile? Now, when I say, what does it mean to be a people in exile? I don't mean, hey, culture's getting bad around us and we feel sort of threatened or feel like we're sort of not at home anymore. I don't mean that, right? So let's be very clear on this. The American church is not being persecuted. And those who think that it is don't understand persecution. I have friends around the world who are in the middle of real persecution. We might be marginalized moderately, but whether or not Starbucks sells a cup with what we like on it, that's not persecution, right? So we're not in the middle of this distressing, distressing persecution moment. What we are, however, is joining together with followers of Jesus for the last few millennia who find ourselves between the Garden and the New Jerusalem, living as an exiled people, trying to understand how we function as representatives of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, and yet while at the same time being in the midst of a, a people and a place who do not share our values, our theology, and certainly do not share our worship of Jesus. And so I want us to look at this familiar passage in Jeremiah chapter 29 when uh, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to uh, the nation of Israel in exile, right? So in your biblical chronology, this is Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, this is Daniel, this is the same group of exiles who are in Babylonian captivity. And the thing is, as they found themselves in Babylonian captivity, there were, we believe, false prophets among them telling them that they would be in captivity for two years or less. And God's going to sort of disrupt that idea in this text. And so as a result, these captives, these exiles, these Israeli Jewish exiles, were sort of isolating themselves from the culture around them. And uh, as they isolated themselves from the culture around them, they were imagining in their mind that if we could just sort of hunker down and survive, in a very short period of time, God's going to come snatch us out of exile, take us back to our homeland, and we're not going to have to deal with the cruddy Babylonians anymore. And I think I see a number of parallels in the contemporary American church to that posture. Isolation from the culture at large and insulation against the culture. As a Baptist, you might be surprised to know this, but Tim Keller is my, I like to call him my Yoda. I love Tim Keller. And uh, Keller says that as a church, we have to make a decision about our posture toward the city. We are either going to be a church in the city in other words, a church that's in the city but not really engaged in the city. We're going to be a church against the city. We are physically in the city but opposed to the culture around us. We're going to be a church uh, of the city. In other words, a church finding ourselves at home in uh, the context to the degree that we adopt the theology and worldview of the city around us. Or we can be a church for the city. And I want to advocate in this text today that God is calling his people to be those who are for, in and for the city where he has placed them. 
At my church, we like to honor the reading of God's word by standing as we read it. Would you mind if we did that this morning and stand as we read? Beginning in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 4, reading down through verse 14. Follow along with me as I read. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all of the exiles that I have deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for your sons and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. They're prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, this is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Pray with me if you will. God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering this morning for a few minutes to center our hearts and lives on you as you are made manifest in your word. Thank you that two things are true this morning. First, that you are God, that you are sovereign over this moment and this place, over each of our lives. But secondly, and equally true, that you are good, that you are providential. And that while you are sovereign and you are authoritative over this moment, we can trust that which you'll do in our lives, knowing that you are working for our good and your glory. And so we pray that as you work in our lives this morning, as you help us to consider what what it means to be a people in exile, that you would call us and even cause us over the next few minutes together be conformed into the image of Jesus, thus fulfilling your commitment, your, your promise to us, and that we would leave today more like Christ than when we came. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. I want you to see in this text that Christians are not so much secret agents simply waiting a future kingdom, but rather we are current residents of a present kingdom, and our lives are to be ordered rightly in light of that. We are, we are residents of a current and present kingdom. We are waiting on the ultimate consummation of the kingdom. And as those in exile, God has called us and given us direction in his words to Daniel and the nation of Israel, has given us direction about how we are to engage the culture around us. Four characteristics of what it means to live as a missionary church or a missionary people in exile. First, understand that our presence as exiles is a result of God's good plan. Look at verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all of the exiles that I have deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. He refers to this concept over and over and over again in this text. In other words, the nation of Israel in exile, angry, uncomfortable, struggling with the oversight of the Babylonians, certainly an ungodly people. If there there has ever been an ungodly people, the Babylonians would have been that. The Assyrian Empire, horrific. And the nation of Israel struggles in this moment to understand where God is, and God says to them, I'm with you, and I placed you there. You are in exile because of my good good and godly intentions for both you and Babylon. The American church needs to understand this today at this 
current cultural moment where we find ourselves in. I used to work for a guy named Ed Stetzer for four years, and Ed has heavily influenced my life. And Ed likes to say about the current cultural moment that while we're not necessarily being persecuted, we have lost the home field advantage. Right? There was a time 40, 50 years ago when the, the American church would do something and the crowd around us, i.e. the culture, would applaud. But we've lost the home field advantage. The crowd doesn't cheer when we make decisions anymore that are in line with Scripture. And for those particularly who are maybe my age, I'm 40, uh, 41, for those who are my age and older, there is a disconcerting effect because the game has been switched on them mid-course and they find themselves lonely and frustrated and unsure of how to engage the culture. And in response, they often throw rocks, they yell, they get angry, we want to boycott, those sort of things. And those of us in this room who maybe did not necessarily grow up in that environment certainly find ourselves sometimes struggling with those around us. And we would do well, first of all, to understand why they feel so frustrated. Because unlike your lives, the game has been changed for them. What was no longer is. And they find themselves ill-equipped to engage the cultural moment. But you and I have a unique opportunity. We have an opportunity to understand that we are here because of God's good providence in our lives and the culture around us. That he intends for us to be ambassadors, representatives of the kingdom of Jesus in this moment and in the place where we find ourselves. It's important for you and I to understand that just like the exiles in Daniel's day, just like the exiles in Jeremiah's day, they were isolated, marginalized, maybe even persecuted. God reminds them that they're there for his purposes. This was not punishment. It was his purpose in their lives. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that God would place his people in challenging moments for his good purposes because nearly all of human history speaks to that reality. None greater than the life of Jesus. Consider Acts chapter 4, Peter preaching in Jerusalem. And he said, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, God, to do whomever, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is consistent with God's activity throughout all of human history that he would place us in difficult, challenging moments so that we might reflect the kingdom of God at this moment and among these people. We would do well to recognize that God has called us and brought us together with his church. In fact, if I can make an argument, it would be that we need the local church more than at any other point in time in the lives of anyone who's alive in the American context right now. We need one another because we are a different, an altogether different kingdom. I preached this at our church last week. For those of you who were here eight days ago at Brainerd, you'll remember I said that both the political left and the political right are pressing in on us and asking us to make decisions that are contrary to the ethos, the ethics of Jesus. We're an altogether different kingdom, and the only ones who really understand our ethical posture are those who equally claim the name of Jesus. We need the local church. We need covenant relationship with the local church where we gather together, as Hebrews says, regular, regularly and consistently for the purpose of compelling one another to love and good deeds. The problem is far too many of us in a materialistic context don't look at church as covenant community where we gather together to be compelled into the image of Jesus, but rather we look at it as something of a materialistic experience itself. I like to say that we often choose churches the way I choose blue jeans, right? When I go shopping for blue jeans, I look for the coolest looking place that offers me the most comfortable fit and, and asks of me or demands of me the smallest price. That's what consumerism tells me to do. That's exactly what we do with the local church. Let me find the coolest looking place, fits me most comfortable, and doesn't ask very much of me. 
But in the cultural moment where we're in, that we, we recognize, we need to recognize that God has placed us here for his glory and for the good of the context that we are in. We're here purposefully. And we need the local church community to gather around with us and to help compel us so that together we might be that manifestation of the kingdom of God in this place. Second thing I want you to see in this text is that not only is our presence as exiles a part of God's good plan, but secondly, our responsibility as exiles then is to integrate into society, not try and escape from it. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, you are to build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, find wives, have children, give your children and marriage, multiply there, do not decrease. This is not the language of hide out on the edge of culture and isolate yourself. What we have been very good at doing for quite a number of decades is not integrating into culture, but rather creating subcultures sort of on the edge of culture. In fact, we like to throw rocks at culture saying, well, that the culture around us is bad. Hear me when I say the culture is not bad. The culture is just the house we live in. There's bad elements, there's good elements. The culture is where we are. You are the culture. We're not separate from the culture. We're not distinct from the culture. We all contribute to uh, and, and are a part of the cultural environment and the cultural moment. And as the, the exiles in Babylon were called to, we need to understand that God is calling us to embed ourselves in the cultural moment and have something to say about hap- what happens in the culture around us. We wonder why the church is wholly ineffective. It's because we've com- completed, completely created subcultures isolated from the culture around us, throwing rocks at those who are dominantly expressive in the culture. Our posture is anger, frustration, misunderstanding, and isolation. And then we wonder why we have no say. There was a time for the vast majority of human history where the church was dominant in expressing sort of iconic figures in the culture around them, whether it was the arts, the education domain, finance, healthcare, government. But we've completely abdicated our responsibility from the context and the culture around us. We've completely separated ourselves and isolated ourselves. We have Christian music and Christian clothes and Christian movies. We settle for inferior products in almost all of those areas. Rather than being good at what we are doing and integrating into the culture and demonstrating to the world around us what it looks like when someone saturated with the gospel of Jesus and enamored with the glory of God might engage in the arts or finance or health care or education. We create inferior subcultures around us and wonder why the culture around us mocks us. It's because they're right to. Because what we have created is less than that which would testify to the greatness and the glory and the goodness of God. The third thing I want you to see in the text is that our presence and goal as exiles should ultimately lead to the success of the city. First, we're here because God wants us to be here. Secondly, while we are here, we are to integrate into the context, the culture around us. Third, our purpose in the culture is to lead to the success of the city. Look at verse 7, if you will. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. The well-being here, in my translation, I'm using the CSB. Uh, the word well-being, some of you may be, in your translation, it may say the blessing of the city, is the Hebrew word shalom. Now, the Hebrew word shalom means what? Good Bible college students. You all know that. Here's the problem. Our interpretation, our translation of the concept of shalom is radically truncated. Shalom is not the absence of conflict. It's not what shalom means. 
Shalom means the holistic blessing of God on a people and a place. God is not calling us to just stop the fighting. God is calling us to be advocates for the kingdom of God in the context where we are. And doing so, believing that the the, the ethics of God's kingdom lead to the flourishing of the cultural environment around us. Sadly, today, the church seems to often believe that the ethics of Christ's kingdom are something for which we should be embarrassed about. We're we're, we're, We're... We're doing one of two improper and unfortunate things when it comes to the ethics of Jesus. Either we are holding to the orthodoxy of Jesus, but failing with regards to the orthopraxy of Jesus. In other words, we are theologically accurate and we're jerks. Or we are holding to the orthopraxy of Jesus. We are kind and gracious and generous, and we are jettisoning the orthodoxy of God and his word. Why are we embarrassed of a biblical theology of sexuality and gender? Why are we embarrassed of a biblical theology of the family and the home? We shouldn't be. But we should hold to them in such a way. First of all, we should hold to them because we believe that they lead to the flourishing of the city that we call home. And so we advocate for shalom. We seek the shalom of the city, the context, the place that we call home. And as part of that, as part of that shalom, we hold to the ethics, the orthodoxy of Jesus, but we do so in a manner consistent with the character of Jesus. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount at our church right now. We're three weeks in. Will Campbell, who's here with me, is our college pastor. He kicked it off two weeks ago walking through the Beatitudes, and we've begun walking through it. This coming Sunday, we're going to look at the latter part of Matthew chapter 5, And we're going to consider what it means to turn the other cheek and love your enemies. And one of the things that I like to say about the Sermon on the Mount is that far too many Christians seem to believe that it is uh, is idealistic and impractical. I don't disagree. But I still think you ought to embody it. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not God's plan necessarily for you and I to succeed in life. The Sermon on the Mount is God's pattern for us to become like Jesus. And when we become like Jesus, while we may not necessarily win, we may not win political victories, we may not win economic victories, it's possible that those things would be true. We do believe that in the long run, that in the great arch of of human history, that as we embrace the ethics of Jesus, as we advocate for the shalom of the city, God will use that to cause the cultural environment around us to flourish increasingly into the image of the garden and the ultimate city that will be someday. You and I are called to seek shalom. We're called to settle into the places that we call home, to love the places we call home. Now, Chattanooga is an easy place to love. It's amazing to me. I've lived in a lot of, I've lived in some cool places. Nashville is a cool place. I love Nashville. Lived there for a few years. I've never lived in a place that I love as much as Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's an amazing city to love. But when we say that we love Chattanooga, what we generally mean by that is that we love the mountain, or we love the waterfalls, or we love the river or the walkable downtown. But how many of us love the low-income places in Chattanooga? How many of us proudly declare, that's my city? Chattanooga is beautiful. But a New York Times article on America's growing poor and low-income populations featured Chattanooga as a highlight of disturbing new trends. They found that 27% of our city's residents live below the poverty line, double the national average. Out of that number, women had two-thirds of the city's poor households, and 42% of its children are poor, nearly double the statewide average. 
Chattanooga ranks 12th in the nation for income inequality. 7% of Chattanooga adults don't have a high school diploma, and in our poorest neighborhoods, over 40% of Chattanooga adults do not have a high school diploma. African-American households in Chattanooga make $26,787 a year, while white families in Chattanooga make $51,548 a year. You can either determine one of two things about that data, and there's more data to support it, right? The prison population, we can use that as a justification as well. You can make one of two conclusions, you can draw one of two conclusions from that. Either you have to be morally inferior to be African-American, or there is systemic inequality that the Church of Jesus Christ is failing to advocate for when it comes to seeking the shalom of the city and the place that we call home. And I choose the latter. We are to seek the shalom of our city. That means that we engage, first of all, the greatest way we seek shalom is to advocate for those in our city to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the temptation for those of you in this room. The temptation is to seek the shalom of the city with regards to sex trafficking or racial inequality. To seek the shalom of the city in terms of educational and health care standards, but to never tell anybody what it means to follow Jesus as a child of his. Because when you seek the first part of that, of that sort of shalom equation, everybody will applaud. When you get to the second, very few will. So we seek the shalom of the city by declaring to our city that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. But because of God's deep and abiding love for us, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place as our substitutionary atonement. And when we place our hope and our faith in him, he transforms us. He adopts us for what is ultimately the second time because he made us and then he claims us again in, in and through adoption. And then we seek shalom with respect to income inequality, racial inequality, sex trafficking, the orphan crisis, and so on and so forth. We are to seek shalom. Our willingness to embrace life and not escape it is a reflection of the character of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. When we embrace the shalom, seeking the shalom of the city, we become like Jesus, even as it cost us to do so. The fourth and final thing I want to say to you is this. Ultimately, our work toward prosperity and restoration in the city is a foreshadowing of God's ultimate work of restoration. So if you look, beginning in verse 10 down through verse 14, God says to them, you think you're going to be here in isolation and exile for a very short time, but that's not the case. Notice what he says. Verse 10, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, then I will attend to you, and I will take you back to Jerusalem. You understand what he's saying, right? He's speaking to exiles who are longing for their home, and he's saying to basically every adult in attendance, you are going to die in captivity. Essentially, no adult who was listening to Jeremiah prophesy was going to live to see their homeland again. Their advocacy was not going to be for them. Their advocacy was going to be for the kingdom and the generations that were to come behind them. But what God says here is he says, you do this because you have the hope that I am ultimately going to return and restore you to your home. Why do you and I advocate for the shalom of God in the place that we call home? Not just because it's the right thing to do. Not just because it leads to human flourishing. 
but because eschatologically you and I are reminded that there is coming a time when Christ will return and he is going to establish this new Jerusalem. Romans chapter 8 says that all of the created order around us is groaning for the return of Christ and for him to make things right. You understand that that means that Jesus is coming not just to save us and get us to heaven, but rather to recreate his entire creation, to bring resurrection to the created order And you and I advocate for shalom as a foreshadowing of the ultimate restoration that is to come. And that's when we get to Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, this incredibly famous passage. See, I think what many of us have been taught to believe about Jeremiah 29, 11 is that somewhere in heaven, there's this magnificent divine whiteboard. And on the left-hand column, you know, the left-hand side, all of our names are sort of written out beside of it. And, And to the right of all of our names is this great plan that God has for us if we'll just be good little boys and girls. If we'll just do all the things we're supposed to do, God has this. Hear me when I say this right now. God is not your divine sugar daddy. God's promise for your life is not do the right thing, toe the line, obey me, and I'm going to make it rain in your life. Jeremiah 29, 11 in the Old Testament is in essence the book of Revelation in the New Testament, saying to a church hurting And feeling far from God, stay the course, hold the line, seek shalom, and I'm going to make it right in the end. Jeremiah 29, 11 is God's anchor verse to us. Be faithful. Don't just be image bearers, but beyond that, be advocates for the city of God. Be advocates for the kingdom of God. Be my ambassadors, the visible manifestation of my kingdom. And you do this with the eschatological hope that it will not always be this way. And that's why Revelation chapter 21 reminds us that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ himself will appear and that long Galilean arm will reach out to our face and wipe away all of the tears that surround our eyes and promise us that never again, like Noah and the promise of the rainbow, never again will the world be racked by sin and the devastation and the effects that come from that. So you and I, we advocate for shalom. We do it because it's good and it's right and it's a blessing and it's an encouragement, but we do it because we know that someday all things will be made right and new once again. And until that day, we long for and prepare for that moment. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for the privilege that we've had to gather in this space this morning. I know that I did not do an adequate job of rightly explaining your text. So, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the word and you would push it into our hearts and in our souls and you would help us to see an image of Christ and his kingdom across the words that we've just read. And you would call us, you would compel us to be like Jesus. That when we leave today, we would be more like Christ than when we came. That we would be ambassadors, flag carriers, for the kingdom of God. That when the world around us sees us engaged in the culture, that they would know this is what it looks like when the king and his kingdom take up residence. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.